This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 123, 123, recording on Thursday, September 10th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We might be a little goofy today. We just, we've had, we had a goofy pre-show call. Talk. We've talked about our weird, embarrassing late night TV habits. We've been talking about sandwiches. Things to do in Pittsburgh. Uh, just, the Going Clear documentary. It's been a weird morning all the way around, so yeah, uh, yeah. We, if we're a little uh, extra zany today... Uh, well, tough, I guess. Yeah, it's we we're both like on the cusp of being away from work for a little yes, while right. for for different stuff too. So there's that senioritis thing at yeah. play. Yeah, so it's, here it's, we it's are. It's going to be a fun one, but uh, it's if, good. If, if we out zany you, we've got another podcast you go try. You should go try it anyway. But the first episode of Get Booked is live right now. You can download it. You can go to bookriot.com and go to the podcast tab or in iTunes. You can find it there. Uh, it's uh, our new Book Riot podcast hosted by Amanda Nelson, who you know from listening to this show, is on with us. It's bi-weekly. It's a recommendation show. She takes recommendations from listeners and has a special guest on that's uh, particularly well-suited to help her with a particular topic. This first one is uh, largely about being hungover from reading uh, a Little Life by Hanya Yanagahara. Is that how you say that? Hanya. Or, Hanya, Hanya. Uh, and so that's the first episode. They got a lot of good recommendations. Uh, really looking forward to it. And if you have a recommendation request for you, for someone you know, um, not unlike the, the recommendation special shows we've done here, it's kind of where we got the idea to have a show that's just about recommendations. I think I might write in myself. I got a couple of things I'm looking for. I uh, might do that. So you can go check that over there. Um, the other thing is a Wheelhouse is our code. If you're interested in coming to Book Riot Live, you can get $20 off your ticket. Go to bookriotlive.com. You enter code wheelhouse at checkout, get $20 off your ticket. It's coming together. It's soon. I mean, we're coming it's, good. it's like two months. November yep. 7th and 8th here in New York City, two-day reader convention. And kind of the way I've been thinking about it and talking to people about it is like, it's the reader convention we've always wanted to go to. Yep. Got lots of different panels, lots of different kinds of topics. Um, We've got lots of, you know, all, well, I don't know, I, I can't say we have all genres, but we have a bunch of genres. Many. And they're mixed up in different kind of panels. Um, and there's all sorts of people that are coming. Games, and yeah. there will be lots of vendors. You will be able to buy so many bookish items, like outfit yourself from head yeah. to toe and stock your house with book-related well, stuff. Early November, you might get your Christmas shopping out of the way for oh, you, other people, get some like ideas that. there. Um, so in early November, New York should be really great. And uh, there's also a couple of ancillary events, uh, you know, Minglers at the Strand, Friday and Saturday night. You could check those out to see. I think there's some tickets left for some of those. Check that out. BookRiotLive.com. Offer code. We lost. We're going to do a live recording of this show. There's going to be a live recording of the new book show. Like we're we're kind of, there's like one of the tracks will be just all the podcast live. So you can meet all meet all of us, and we have some Q and A. But also, you know, Margaret Atwood's going to be there. Daniel Older's going to be there. Nora Jemison. Jemison. Yeah. You know, all sorts of people great, and great lineup. People. Publishers, publishers and editors and oh Beverly Jenkins yeah. who you just had on the reading yeah, Lines well, podcast she, that that one's not gonna be out for a couple of weeks but yeah she'll be there she was great by the way uh, so it's gonna be all kinds of stuff romance mystery sci fi literary fiction commercial fiction um, editors publicists Pete Mendelson uh, book designer you know the whole kind of ecosystem of books and booksellers and fans and book riot staff people it's gonna be a lot of fun I'm really it's looking forward be great. to it yeah I've been pitching it as book nerd palooza there you go uh, bookriotlive.com november 7th and 8th um go check it out offer code wheelhouse i'm gonna have to get some bookish pajamas to wear during the podcast oh, really? recordings because i'm i'm like never 
dressed like a grown-up for podcasts. I see. It's yeah. always early in the morning or late at night. So maybe those composition notebook leggings there you from go. the Book Riot store. But it'll that, then I'll really I'll be in my element. We'll get some donuts. We'll put them between us. It'll give us something to do with our hands. <laughs> <laughs> just hold a donut just the whole time. Sure. Talking to the donut. Um, so our first sponsor, Scribd is back. Scribd, it is the subscription book service that gives you access to more than a million books and audiobooks. So right now, if you just want to go try it out, you've heard us talk about Scribd before. If you, you want to skip the rest of the, the ad read, you, you know what's going on. Maybe this is the time we're going to try it. Scribd.com slash bookwrite to get started with a free month trial Scribd is spelled S-C-R-I-B-D dot com. Over a million books and audiobooks. Ebooks are all you can eat. Comics, all you can, all you can read. You can blow through 10,000 of them in a month you want. You want to try a few pages? Fine, put it away. There's no limit on the number of ebooks and comics you can try. A whole bunch of great stuff. A lot of great Daredevil. They've got Lumberjanes over there. We've talked about that before on the show. Comics, especially now, like people mm-hmm. are talking about a little bit more. We've got some recommendations on um, scribd.com slash bookwrite, some of the things we pick out in terms of ebooks. That has been a change. A lot of you heard about Scribd before. They've gone to a credit model for audiobooks. So you're $8.99 month. So basically, that'll tick over, and every month you'll get a free token to use for an audiobook for that month. You can look, pick out something to listen to that's part of your basket of ebooks and comics. You get one audiobook. If you want to do more than that, you can buy more credits. You know, another credit, you buy another credit, get another audiobook. So think of it as like an ebook and comic subscription service that gives you one audiobook. And then if you there's something else you want to try there, you pay a little extra for that. Um, so that's, you know, a, still a very good deal, but it is a change from the unlimited audiobook service. They have 40,000 audiobooks and some of the biggest new releases. You can find great books. They, I, we said this on the show last time, but it's even fun, like especially if you have it on your iPad, where like, you know, just browsing is fun. Yep. Oh yeah, See just building there. your list is really things satisfying. coming out. They're adding new stuff all the time. They get new releases, so you know you might check every week or so and to add something to to your to read or to listen list. They also do collections, kind of like the one we did for them. That's Book Riot, but created by their team of editors. You can see they'll start tailing your recommendations based on what you're interested in, what you've liked, what you've rated before. So that's what it is. Scribd.com. It's coming into fall. The heavy reading season coming into winter. You're gonna have a lot of time on your hands because it's terrible outside. Then um, Scribd gives you a way to sort of explore, experiment, browse, expand your reading horizons, and uh, keep track of stuff you want to listen to. So thanks so much to Scribd for sponsoring this and many other episodes. Yeah. One thing that I've been doing with Scribd is when a book comes up, like in the news or you know something that's backlist, a book that's not brand new but is getting talked about, I usually search Scribd first to see if it's there oh, before it's very I go and, and buy the ebook. And I was reminded of this yesterday because Amanda did it. There was a story that broke on Vox earlier. Earlier this week by a woman named Sarah Christman, oh. who <laughs> who received a corset from her husband as a birthday gift, and at first was not happy because even though she had loved Vic- the Victorian era and you know wanted to study the history of it, also knew about what corsets had done to female bodies in mm. that time period, and. I guess had specifically told him she never wanted one, but he bought her a corset anyway, and she wore it. And then they started living their lives every day now in the 21st century as if they were in the Victorian period. It's like a gateway under thing. It's like, like yeah, full-time yeah. LARPing. I guess. Uh, um, and she wrote a book called Victorian Secrets, What a Corset Taught Me About the Past, the Present, and Myself. Um, Amanda 
was hate reading it. This is last so up Amanda's hate reading alley. Like it only it's like a kryptonite like in a bad way. Right, it is. She's she loves history. Amanda yeah. loves history. She loves Victorian stuff. This is perfect. Also stuff about uh, like women's lives and domesticity right. and modernity. Like, right. It's just too good. This is Amanda's wheelhouse. Uh, but this book, Victorian Secrets, is on Scribd. So you if you also, you know, enjoyed the piece on Vox um, by Sarah Chrisman from any of the possible angles that a person might enjoy that piece you can read the whole book oh it's right on there script. on script okay. it's right here on script yeah, yeah victorian secrets what of course oh, that's probably me. amanda she's probably looked and said hey there it is yeah. right there yeah okay cool okay well you know what okay um <laughs> our world you know this is of the calls we've asked for people to give us um feedback and other sources the call for uh bannings book banning censorship uh, you know pulling from libraries from around the world has yielded some very interesting results it really has and, and this I, one oh go ahead I, this is this is the cherry on the t- i mean this is i actually haven't heard of this in the modern setting at all this is a legitimate government book banning of a of a book in New Zealand. Right. Not Makes, a challenge, not no, like an angry parent taking, taking a book off, off a library shelf. An optional summer reading list for private universities. This is uh, a ban that makes it a crime to supply, display, or distribute the book in any way. The book is called Into the River um, by Ted Daw. He uh, lives in Auckland, New Zealand. And apparently it's an award, <laughs> award-winning book. It's a YA book. It's always the YA that has sex in it. I mean, that you could draw and up like, you could get like a computer <laughs> algorithm that would is. write a book that the, would get banned. Right. The complaint is that it contains explicit descriptions of sex and drug use, as well as an offensive term for female genitalia. We'll get to fin- female genitalia a little bit later in the show. We actually do. No, have I'm not kidding. Yeah, spot we, about a, female a, genitalia. Yeah. So it's it, been a week. There's a, that's, there's something to look forward to there. Um, and so I don't know anything about the book. I, I, I don't know. Other you know, than that it's an award-winning. Winning, you know, I'm guessing that it's actually, exp- I, I'm guessing it's probably like one of these modern YA books that is about real things teens have happened to them and do. Um, and that is the thing that also triggers people being anxious and, about it because it's a little too close to home, yeah, a little some- too real. There's a librarian here in the piece named Jane Shawcross, uh, who's from Wellington High School. And she says, uh, do they have any idea what's even in a school library? Mm. It's got some sex in it. For goodness sake, this is life. Kids read this stuff. And she goes on to say that she is stunned because books by people like Irvine Welsh, um, who wrote Train Spotting and writes, you know, very, like, very gritty um very adult themed books. These are in school libraries and people aren't banning those. So it's always interesting, like which books people do single out for having offensive content, especially when they're not all the way down the offensive spectrum and other potentially offensive stuff gets unchallenged, gets mm. to gets to stay. It's that selectivity is really interesting and she pulls that out uh in this piece from uh a New Zealand website a New Zealand that I've never news heard of. Website. Yeah, stuff.co.nz. <laughs> the New uh, Zealand stuff. New Zealand stuff. Uh, it won the top prize in the New Zealand Post Children's Book Awards in 2013. Probably why it's in the news at all is that people are like have extra scrutiny. Yeah, of it. and this is the first time. This is an interim ban yeah. where the um, Film and Literature Board of Review is going to review the book and consider whether it should be restricted. And so while they're in the process of preparing for and doing that, the book has been banned in the interim. And this is the first time an interim ban has been imposed on a book since this current law was passed in New Zealand 22 mm. years ago. So, and, and wow, the notable... law was passed 22 years ago and the first time using it? That's weird. 
yeah, for also for, you know, sex and drugs and female body parts. There's a there's an official censor. You know, it's not the first time that a book has come out in the last 22 no. years that contains this. It's. Um, I guess they have they have book classification systems because the sense the official New Zealand censor classifies the mm-hmm. book as M uh, for restricted, which doesn't make any sense. And then the review board partially upheld the family first. The family first being yeah. the what are, you know the, you know these groups always the same name. Families first. Children are great. Um, don't hurt our moms. You know they think always think of the children. Think of the com. children. Yeah, but you use your you talk to your mother with that mouth. Dot uh, org. Um, then imposed an R fourteen restriction on the book. I guess you couldn't buy it if you were under fourteen years old. Mm-hmm. So kind of like not unlike the classifications we have about movies here, though this is an official government position where the MPA is a industry group um, and, for movies. Uh, this is important not only because book banning attempts are noteworthy and important to discuss, period. But because in this case, however Into the River ends up classified is going to operate as something of a precedent for future bans and challenges. And that exerts an influence on other decisions about other material that are uh, challenged in the future when the material portrays teenage sex and drug use. Um, So these things don't exist in a vacuum and they don't exist only by themselves. Everything is, you know, a book banning attempt is part of a, a larger system and has mm-hmm. potential consequences, and these happen everywhere. I, I mean, I'm, a, a crime to supply, a crime, display, display. Oh, mm-hmm. You can't, you can't put it uh, or distribute the book in any way. Uh, the liable for fines of three thousand and ten thousand dollars, respectively. That's yeah, bonkers. He, we we're so we so want parents to control what their kids will read. That parents can't even buy it for the kids if they want. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's. I mean, I guess I get. I don't support, but I get the we don't want it on the school reading list. That I'm going to argue about, but I sort of get it in a certain way. The the no one can buy it thing. The no one can distribute it. Thing. Like Ted Daw, he couldn't even give it out for free. Right. You you could. I get, technically it would be a crime to give it to your brother. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's my understanding of this. Or a friend or someone who asked you. Yeah. If someone asked him to, for a copy, he said, I can't, I can't yeah. give it to you. Individuals ya. and organizations who knowingly supply the banned book are liable for fines between three and $10,000. That's amazing. I, and this is the first one I've ever heard of while I've been paying attention to like book it really news. Is that it's like a, it's a government, you know, you can get fined. It's, yeah. it's, well, it's a crime to do. With an example that's close to home, we talked about, or you and Amanda first talked about the challenge on Some Girls Are by Courtney Summers. It could be this book. I mean, Several it sounds very ago, similar it, to it this. It could very well be this book. And our own Kelly Jensen, one of our associate editors, um, helped raise funds and collected more than 800 copies of the book and had them sent to the Charleston yep. library so that teens who couldn't get the book at school could get it from the public library. That would and be a still crime in this situation. Access. Right. Kelly be paying three 10, to 10,000 bucks or maybe going to jail. Who knows? Um, that's it's. That's amazing. It, it's really great job by Kelly, stunning. by the way. There's a, I'll put a link in the show notes to the, she wrote a post about the story of yeah. 830 copies available for the teens Good in Charleston. Good job. Some girls are. Too. Um, really put her you know, uh, action I'm, where her mouth is. And, you know, clicktivism doesn't work, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People, getting, people on uh, the internet. People they caring just... about stuff online, nothing ever happens. And uh, just goes to show. <laughs> I'm a, you I'm know going... this band started online. Oh, you know it <laughs> You did. know Family First has a email they list. They have an email list, yeah. And 
no one at Family First has read the book. I would bet money. Um, um, 400, 400 signatures. At, le- at least that's the better than one. Per- I mean, I don't know. It's not great, but this story we're going to talk about in a few minutes about. Uh, <sighs> actually, no, yeah. we're going to do this now. We're going yeah, to run right to this. Let's just, just do it let's now. Let's just do it now. So, man, this one got me real mm. angry this week. Um, if you've been paying attention to books for the last several years, especially if you've been bookish on the internet, you probably remember hearing about The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot, which came out in 2010. It was widely acclaimed, huge very book. like huge book. It was one of the ones that was selected as like the book that all of the f- incoming freshmen should read at a bunch of colleges, including um, Virginia Commonwealth University here in Richmond. Huge, huge book. It's the true story of a woman named Henrietta Lacks, um, a poor black woman from Baltimore who had had a sample of her cells taken in 1951 without her knowledge or consent while she was in the hospital for cervical cancer. And those cells and the cells that were, you know, basically yeah, it was cultured made from and raised them, and, you know, right, propagated um, were for the cells that led to major medical breakthroughs uh, over the last several decades since 1950. I think they went into space, some of them. Yeah. Is that part like, of the story? Like they were doing research a, on cancer cells and cell right. growth in space. Oh, like Rebecca, the story that Rebecca Sloot tells about Henrietta Lacks is that most of what we know about cervical cancer now began because of these cells that doctors and scientists took from Henrietta Lacks without her knowledge or consent. And so huge medical breakthroughs, billion dollar medical advances Mm. have been made from a part of her body that was taken without her consent. And the Lacks family had no idea about this. And also now that they do know has never received any Compensation. compensation. Yeah, right. So it's a big story about medical ethics, but also about Race, race and poverty and consent and, and identity. Right, it's right, just a wonderful, right. so, wonderful an, book. A really wonderful and important yeah. book. Um, a, a parent in Knoxville, uh, in East Tennessee, her, uh, her name is Jackie Sims. She has a 15-year-old son who's a sophomore at Knox County Schools L&M our LNN STEM Academy, so like a science, technology, engineering, a science math. and engineering school. Just put right. That this in your mind this sounds like a very appropriate book for them. Um, it, the book has been assigned for students, and her son brought it to his mother recently. And passages that he read he read made him uncomfortable. Um, the mother is shocked that there's so much graphic information in the book, um, and she cites a passage that describes infidelity, and another that describes Lax's intimate discovery that she has a lump on her cervix. Intimate discovery is the phrase from the piece here. Um, Henrietta Lax suspects that there is something wrong inside her body. And she inserts a finger into herself and feels a bump on her cervix. Um, This mother considers the book pornographic. It could be told in different ways. She said, there are so many ways to say things without being graphic in nature. And that's the problem I have with this book. Um, My head exploded reading this. There's nothing pornographic or sexy about cervical cancer. I can guess a lot of these challenges. I I wouldn't guess. Yeah, I can't imagine something further from a sexual moment than inspecting your own body to see if there's a cancerous lump on it. And this equation of women's bodies, like any description of women's bodies, even in the most medical terminology, must be pornographic, is so telling about the ways that we think about women's bodies 
in American culture and how <sighs> how limited we are. And I think what I said on Twitter was like, well, a discussion of a cervix must be pornographic because women's bodies are only for sex, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, this is very telling in so many ways. What words would you have them use Can if we can't say that a cervix is a cervix? It's the... Uh. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting to think about, like, beyond just the head-scratchingly confusing part of uh, he's i mean i guess women's bodies are just pornographic then i mean if this mm -hmm. is your argument then every well, woman walk around is just what sort if, of porn like what if she had discovered that she had breast cancer like you do women are taught to do our, no. our doctors tell us you do self exams in the shower what no. if this were a scene of a woman checking her breasts in the shower for lumps well, is this that is, this that is must one, be pornographic too this is one that's beyond sort of uh I don't know, you know, challenging a YA novel, which is its own problems. But like, the, I think there's something to be said that the, this, this same kind of reaction against reading this book also contributes kind of to the kinds of stories like Henrietta Lacks is about consent. Mm -hmm. It's right. about knowledge. It's about transparency. Uh, it's about education, about what's possible and what isn't possible. We know a lot about cervical cancer and what you can and can't do to protect yourself. Um, it's it's a it's a and crazy a crazy ch I mean I don't know this one really surprised and startled me. It's unusual uh, for us to hear about attempts to ban or challenge nonfiction. Non I was thinking about that. I couldn't come up with another that, example. Right, this is a book about real things. Um, yeah. I also wondered if it had been about. Uh, if it were a man's cells from like yeah, prostate cancer, cancer, would that have also or... been pornographic? I suspect not. No, like, I don't think because so. cervical cancer is so closely tied to HPV, which is sexually transmitted and which women suffer the vast no. majority of the consequences for. One of my friends jokes about, um, I mean, not jokes, but refers to the way that we talk about cervical cancer as being patriarchal slut cancer. Like that's the way that the mm. media would present it because it's a thing that only women get the consequences of. If this were a book about cancer that a man got and it weren't connected to sexual activity in any way, I think it would be a different kind of response. But like there's nothing to dispute in Sklut's presentation of Henrietta Lacks' story. There's not like, oh, well... You know, you could have just not had the scene about discovering cancer because this is fiction. This is nonfiction. This is a story about a real woman's mm -hmm. life. Well, it, it, you can't make up parts of the story, too. Like, she lives in an unmarked graves in Laxtown, which <laughs> is named after the family that owned her ancestors. You know, like, yeah. it brings together so many parts of it that it... it I would just recommend the book to anybody who's interested in sort of life at all. I mean, to be honest, like <laughs> it is a really phenomenal. It's book. It's an unbelievable book, and you know, to to the credit, the the school district and the library and the superintendent have all supported the teacher and the selection. This doesn't look like it's going to get taken out of this cemetery, but it does show the mechanism that one person's letter triggers mm -hmm. a review, and it goes through official research, and then and it gives sort of. You know there are other people getting on board here, and there's going to be family and, first of America, the New Zealand, are, whatever. 
there are t- there's people's time. There yeah. are school board and school district resources. This is taxpayer money, essentially, that's funding. And a the, chilling effect. You know that someone's going to think about the next book they're going to pick for something. Right. Like, is there something about women's health that I just don't... And I can understand their point of view, to be honest. Like, I don't want to have to go in front of a board. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to end up, uh, you know, with a couple of jerks like us talking about me in a podcast. You know, I just... It's the burden is on the wrong side here um, mm-hmm. of what has to happen. So I'm sorry to hear about this. Uh, we talk about these because I think it's important to know and see what's going on with these things. Like these kinds of books are get challenged all the time. It's a lot different to me than I'm trying. There was something that was challenged the other day. Like it's it's one thing to challenge something that's violent or, you know, that, that's different. And well, I don't support that. But this is... This is like with the challenging books you've never read and you don't want to take the class. Like, we can't, this, we just can't do this. Like, it's intellectual bad faith and it's dangerous. And this will cost people's lives, I think, if this kind of thing is allowed. Mm-hmm. Right. We're talking about a whole bunch of students who are early in their lives. These students are at a science and technology high school, they are likely, you know, like they're on the path to go to college, probably to go into careers that focus on science and technology and medicine, where questions of ethics will be important, where having read and considered Mm -hmm. a book like The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks early in your intellectual life could be formative. It's, yeah, these things have consequences. They have real consequences beyond just what's going to happen to my precious baby if he learns that women have cervixes. Yeah, well, that it's not even the purview of science, really. That it's the devil and sex mm-hmm. and right. evil and sin, and we can't talk about it. Like, that it can't. I mean, I've read a bunch of books recently that touch on the history of medicine and the number of women's lives that were lost because men wouldn't, men doctors wouldn't even give women exams at all mm-hmm. is in the tens and hundreds oh, and perhaps yeah. a million. I mean, this is a long history of this, of there's shying a, away from women's bodies and costing women's years off their life um, there's because an we're sheepish about it. There's an incredible book um, that Barbara Ehrenreich co-authored called For Her Own Good. Mm. That's a full, uh, it's a huge, a co- like comprehensive almost history of all of the treatments and then mistreatments and then non-treatments um, that medical science and primarily male physicians did to women or denied yeah. women based on misunderstandings of women's bodies, but also just fear of women's bodies and of sexuality um, from through history. And it's, it's shocking, uh, but important. So anyway, uh, if you have a young person in your life that's interested in science or really interested in anything at all, and if you are and you haven't read The Mortal Life of Henry Slacks, it's one of the more compelling, fascinating, troublesome, really... uh, provocative books you're, you're likely to read, very readable. Michelle and I both read it, I yeah. think, soon after it came out uh, in 2011. Probably was paperback, the, I want to say. It was one of my um, Swiss Army picks yeah, that that's, year I would, that it came out. I yep. gave it to everybody. Yep, that would make my list of Swiss Army picks, mm-hmm. too. Okay, let, let's, play, let's, let's, let's play a little game. Okay, good. You're I'm ready, ready for game ready for time. This one? I'll hold on to my donut here. So, you know how we like stats, and we got the rarest of all kind of stats. Uh, actually, just came out this morning in the bookseller, which is a, a UK-based uh, publishing industry website, and I think magazine as well. Um, and they have a BookScan account. BookScan being the flawed but all that we have tool <laughs> for measuring book sales. Flawed but all that we have is like the tagline for every publishing metric yeah. ever. It's also what I call all my dinner attempts. Um, <laughs> uh, they, I guess, I guess it's fair game to publish information you get from BookScan. I don't really know what 
is okay here. Maybe they checked with BookScan that this would be all right. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But they looked at the sales of the man – is it the man? Yeah, still the man, yeah, it's Booker. the man Booker. Long listed titles came out a few weeks ago. They were announced on July 29th. So we've had, you know, we've had six weeks or so to see if anything has moved. But they gave us the sales information both at the time of the long list and what's been sold since. So I thought this was pretty interesting. I think I'm 95% sure this is only UK sales. So that's okay. something to take into account here. Um, and how many copies that were sold at the time of the long list and how many were sold since. So okay. this is, has N, N writes a green road. Uh, Hanya Yanagahara's A Little Life. We just talked about that. A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James. Anne Hagen's The Illuminations. Uh, Lila by Marilyn Robinson. Tom, Tom McCarthy's Satin Island. Uh, the Year of the Runaways by Sanjeev Sahota and uh, Leila Lamy's The Moors Account. Um, okay. So. so first off, one second. Uh, first off, we should probably, just so you can guess, because we usually talk about U.S. sales. So let me, let's just do the population of the U.K., just so we have some uh, – um, I think I just looked this up. I just want to make sure I get the exact number right. Where did I put that number? Um, 63 million people in the okay. 2011 U.K. census. So it's about – 20% of the U.S. Okay. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. U.S. is about 370, I think, right now. So use that as your barometer. Is that fair? Uh, sure. Okay. So where do you want to start? Lila? You want to start with Lila or you want to start? I mean, some of these I have no, I would, I mean, Tom McCarthy, Satin Island, I have yeah. no idea. Okay. Yeah, sure. Let's start with Lila. Okay. What do you think? What do you, well, think, it, what do you think it had sold at the oh. time of the long list coming out? In the UK. Any guesses? So before the announcement. Yeah. The day, you know, the, the morning of the announcement, how many it sold. Um, okay. So we're going with the UK is about a fifth of the size yeah. of the US for literary fiction. Literary fiction. To be considered like a, a success here, I've always heard is like you got to sell about 100,000 in the first year. So I'm going to say. It's been out about a year. Right. It's been out. Yeah, it's been out about a year. About a year. Um, I'm going to say before the prize announcement. So maybe just guess what you would like if this was a U.S. number, and we'll just we'll just yeah. Do a if it were a U.S. number, I would guess probably about a hundred and twenty, hundred and forty thousand. So I'm going to guess like not quite twenty percent of that, like fifteen thousand. That's a very good guess. Twelve one eight four was the okay. number for Lila when it okay, came but, out in the hardback. Okay. Only six hundred and twenty five copies since though. So uh, I don't think it's, it doesn't seem to me like it's moved the needle at all. No. Uh, um, oh, and this is the long list. It's not. It's not the short list. The short not list. The winner. Or the winner. Not the winner. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So let's go to a little life from there. Oh, man. It was published okay. three weeks after the long list announcement, which is okay. Weird. Okay. So, so we don't have pre-long yeah, list. Yeah, it, it came out August 13th in the UK. I don't know when uh -huh. it came out in the US, to be honest. It was sometime this summer. Yeah. All right. So what do you, what, what do you think a little life has sold in the US? In the U.S.? Yeah, because then we'll do the number based off that. It's too hard to do it backwards. Mm, okay, that's kind of runaway, buzzy, yeah. big book of the summer. I'm going to guess... More or less than Lila. I guess maybe you start there. I'm going to say more than Lila. Okay, how much more? Um, a third more. It's like 130% of Lila. Okay, and you guessed 120-ish? 100-ish? A Little Life has only sold 7,542 copies in hardback okay. in the U.K., 
So and that's, it's and all of 50% those after, less than Lila. Though it's been and, out a lot longer. Lila's been out all, a lot longer. Yeah. And all of those were after yeah. the Booker. So we can't measure the effect can't of the measure Booker. The okay. It's also the odds-on favor to win at two to one. Interesting. Though, I mean, you can, I guess it makes sense because A Little Life is Buzzier has a little bit of longer tail. And, but mm-hmm. I, as far as I know, Yanagaha had virtually no built in audience. Like, you know, we were talking about Marilyn Robinson right, before yeah, Lila came out. Yanagahara's, and her first novel, The People in the Trees, was acclaimed, but not a sales mm-hmm. success. Um, yeah, and right. And Lila is the third book in this series that Marilyn Robinson is writing. Mm-hmm. And we've been waiting for it a long time. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. We're not going to do all these. Um, the Fisherman. Oh, Chigozi Obioma. I love yeah. that book so much. That had not charted when the long list was announced. Okay. It has now sold 1,252 copies. Okay. Um, so and, about, you know. Almost twice as many as Lila sold since the yeah. announcement. The least selling of the man Booker dozen was uh, Anurata's Roy Sleeping on Jupiter. It's only sold. 604 copies, huh. according to this. You know, uh, let's I, see. Let me let me just jump up. Anne Enright. Let's see. Anne Enright is probably the best known. I guess Anne mm, Enright and then uh, Marilyn Robinson are the biggest names. The Green Road. She's also, um, I think Anne Enright's Irish, maybe, I want to say. I can't remember. I, I think she's um, from the Commonwealth over there. Um, she has sold a total of 8,938 copies for The Green Road. Okay. Uh, Lila is the biggest selling title. Well, that makes my heart happy. Wow. Tom McCarthy, which is like a lit nerd, like Uh experimental fiction darling, has only sold uh, uh, 1511 total. 922 at the time of the long list and 589 copies since. Boy, they just don't don't sell any copies, Rebecca. Yeah, like we, I think... Early in this show's life, somebody did numbers for like the National Book yeah, Award winners. Yeah, we, we talked about that time and time again. After yeah. right after the book, after the awards were announced, and how um, book awards aren't actually moving mm-hmm. very many more units. Or I mean, at least as in a the percentage, some of these yeah. aren't bad. Like Marlon James had sold uh, three thousand four hundred seventy-one since the right. announcement, but you don't know that it could be some other factor. Like and, we don't well, know like, that the award is the one moving all of these copies. Yeah, and like long lists. Yeah, like long in this lists particular case, the long list is that's like it's a it's a different level. It's a lower level yeah. of prestige from the short list. But you, which I is mean, a you've lower seen level you and I have both seen people trying to get through the Booker the long list on Twitter. Like you see yeah. chatter about people. It's like it's not right. nothing, but it's also. Right, but also like there's people in yeah. our nerd core of readers who are getting through those, but I just doubt that in the wider world of no. like general readers who read a couple books a month. Well, I guess I'm just even looking at the numbers at the time of the announcement. Like mm, these are just mm-hmm. sort of this right. is what it's sold. Like and Enright had only sold six thousand well, six hundred like the- books. It's the big open secret of how yeah. publishing Liter- works, right? That the literary stuff that ev- that is the fanciest that we all in, that everybody in publishing hangs their hat on being the publisher of these mm-hmm. of of great, you know, liter- literary craftsmen and women essentially uh, don't sell much at all yeah. and are uh, comparatively and are funded and underwritten by the success of commercial fiction and genre fiction. Um, yeah, I mean, and, it puts perspective those numbers we talked about, like 
selling 1.4 million units of uh, Ghost at a Watchman in four days. <laughs> like, let's say that the UK does even 10% of that. Well, that's more than all of these combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, right there in four days. Um, Maybe they'll do an update of this after the winter. Yeah, I'm sure. And, I'm sure. And look at numbers, but it's. I wonder the long tail would be really interesting mm. on award winners because, like, you do get the sticker on the front of the book that says, you know, National Book Award winner, Man Booker Prize winner, and then the big chain bookstores will do displays. Yeah, of if you li- if you live in the UK, I'd fiction. like to know. Like, so in the U.S., just for those, I know we have UK listeners. Um, uh, I'd like to know, like, in I guess some of the big um, chains there, Waterstones or Foils, uh, if. Because here in in the in the U.S. in Barnes and Noble, because that's our you know sort of mm-hmm. remaining big chain, um, you go into they have these tables of like paperback favorites or award winners, and often they'll collect you know the ones will have a sticker Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, National Book Award finalist, Man Book Award winner. I'm just curious if those of you who know anything about the the high street retailers in the U.K. do they have is that something that happens there? Do they have stickers that go on? And do they like have tables and collect them? Because I, I think you're right. There is a I know people that go back and they try to read all the Pulitzer winners or something sure. else like that. So um, I guess We're the not, winners probably have a long tail. I, I doubt about the finalists. Do you really have a yeah, finalist? I, yeah. No, I don't think there's Even much the of a tail for finalists. I think we both have talked about in our younger years as readers, like oh, yeah, using sure. the lists of Pulitzer winners and National Book Award winners as guides of what to pick up. Or, and we are not alone because that comes up from time to time in the reading yeah. live show. Like people like, you know, I would go into Barnes & Noble and look at the uh, – see what's there. But I, I'm, I would love to know how big of a tail or not that long tail actually – is I, and and to have some conversation about it book awards serve a purpose to you know identify great and noteworthy mm-hmm. work that we can talk about but um it's interesting that i would i, I would i would guess that most readers probably would assume that like the winner of the national book award you know becomes like a rich famous yeah. Writer, well, you, I, and like, I, in general the lives of novelists are not nearly as rich and famous as and glamorous as people assume or would make them out to be. I, I, I would think from a financial point of view that you'd much rather have your book be made into a terrible flop of a movie yeah, than oh, to yeah. win. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> I think we talked about, did we talk about this on the show before? Maybe not, but basically the way it works, at least for most Hollywood deals oh, is mm-hmm, yeah. you get, if you're like, say, uh, Andy Weir, right, who's the big Martian movie we're all looking forward to. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Sold the rights. You, you The option, the rights, usually that's five figures, and then that's the right to actually make a movie out of it. But once the movie is made, they get a percentage of the budget for the film. So I think it's like I think it's like two percent. I think is standard is what I've heard. So you get two percent of the budget. Well, for The Martian, that's a hundred, yeah, two hundred big budget. That's a you know two to four million dollar prize, which blows all this out of the water. But even but that doesn't if the movie flops, it doesn't matter, right? Because right. you've already you know you've already made your money, and then you get a special book and publicity for the book, and you get a whole bunch of sales that follow after that. I mean, maybe there's some prestige things that happen. Maybe you're going to get a bigger advance for your next book from mm-hmm. the publisher if you win one of these things. You get to put winner of the whatever or, you know, a, a finalist for yeah. the whatever on the top. It's, that helps a little bit. I think it's totally, not totally, it's primarily a prestige yeah. thing. We've, we've talked multiple times about how many prestigious literary writers are still teaching oh, yeah. and writing, yeah. you know, like magazine pieces because well, they can't pay their bills just being a literary writer. Well, and and right. So let's say she this is indicative. I probably probably has not sold as a percent probably not equivalent sales in the US because she's a British writer. So let's say she's sold 6,000 ticket times 5. So 30,000 copies in the US maybe. 
Mm-hmm. Even that seems high. So yeah. if she sold 30,000, 40,000 total, she writes a book every four years. You can't live off it. You can't live Mm-mm. off that. Uh, you can't do it. Um, even Marilyn Robinson, 100,000, man, she's still holding 100,000 copies, 200,000 copies, 100,000 copies. She gets what, two or three bucks a title, yep. a copy, something like For that. The hardcover, yeah. It comes out every four years. I mean, you're making forty thousand dollars a year plus whatever her advance was. Well, and you got to pay. You got to pay it out to. The, you got to pay ten, fifteen percent of that to your agent. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough. I mean, you know, certainly people can live on that. People live on less all around the world. But these are people that you and I know. Like, there's this thing. People want to write a book and, and make money. Like, boy, you really the literary fiction route is a tough way to go to make money. That I mean, we all know this, but sometimes the, the cold water in the face. Oh, is yeah. worth talking about uh, a little bit. Um, all right. Fun game, funny. We got to move on to our next sponsor. Yeah, we have I should, let me, Audible back. We've both been doing audiobooks recently, right? We have, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but I just, uh, if you're going to get an audiobook, and if it exists, you can find it on audible.com. That's a pretty fair statement. They're, yeah. they're the largest purveyor of audiobooks. What are we up to now? How many audiobooks do we have on? 180,000 audio programs. Yeah, so. Oh, that's right. Because some you can get, they have some podcasts on there. Michael Ian Black does a, a mm-hmm. special show that's only available uh, through Audible. You can get New Yorker pieces. I was looking for something. Who was, I was looking for some someone the other day, and there were a couple of long New Yorker pieces um, by the author I was looking for there that you could find. Um, so what do you do? You go to audible.com. You get a free app. It's, they're going to have apps for iPhones, iPads, Android, Windows Phone, Kindle Fire. Basically, over 500 devices support it. Um, I can't name 12 devices that most normal humans would have right now. And you get you get to own the books. You sign up. They have a couple of different plans. You sort of pay a fixed monthly fee, and you get you know you basically redeem them from discounted audiobooks. Audiobooks, as you know, um, the retail prices are pricey. You go through Audible, you get a deep discount. Um, depending on the price you pick, several different ideas. You can see what there. Go get a free 30-day trial, audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. That includes one audiobook of your choice. Free, no commitment. Try it out. See if you like it. See if you don't. Um, go check it out there. Uh, let's see. I, uh, Michelle has been talking about the audio version of The Night Circus by Aaron <laughs> Morgenstern, narrated by Jim Dale forever. I think she's oh. listening. I think she's listened to it three times. No joke. She's listened to it three times. I remember you told a story a while back about when the first time she listened to it, she would walk in the door at the end of the day from her commute and just sit down on the couch with her coat still on just to finish the chapter. And, you know, she was stressed out about something a while ago. And she's like, I'm just going to listen to the Night Circus while I'm getting ready because it calms me down. It it is wonderful narration. Uh, Dale is great with one thing. I, I don't love fiction on audiobooks because I don't like people that try to do too many different voices. And that's... But he, he manages to have different voices for the characters. It's not annoying. He doesn't use like a fake falsetto for the female characters, which is another pet peeve of mine. Oh, um, yeah, that's so terrible. It's a wonderful, like, very, it's like, it's a very Baroque sort of writing style, very, you know, intricate, a lot of description, very beautiful, a lot of imagery. Um, it was, en- it's enchanting. What are you going to say? It's an enchanting book. Erin uh, Morgenstern. She it was started out as a National Novel Writing Month project, actually, mm-hmm. um, and uh, has, was a big hit. I actually think it, maybe around the same time as Henry Laddick. I want to say it's been three yeah, or four 2010, years. Yeah, 2011 maybe came out. Um, but it's it's a Swiss Army recommendation for me as a novel. But also, if you're trying to get into fiction, you want to try one. It's an enchanting book. It's it feels like a very winter kind of book for me. I guess there's a there's an ice garden in one of the tents in the Night Circus and some stuff about snow and black and white is the 
the color scheme of the circus. It's a, a love story. It's about magic. It's mm-hmm. you know set in turn of the That's century. That's a great pick. U.S. and Europe mostly. Uh, it's great, and she's right. And she recommended to her sister, who, who or Rebecca blew through it as well. <laughs> so we got the the night circus is going viral in my uh, immediate family right now. Um, so that's that. That'd be my yeah. Uh, we just finished The Martian there here on Team Shinsky, which I read when it came out, but had been wanting to revisit before the movie. And Bob had not read it. And I've talked before about how we, we don't have much overlap in our reading interests, but like nerdy sort of sci-fi stuff uh, is a good place for us. So it, The Martian is excellent on audio. It, the book moves really quickly. Mm-hmm. The narrator also doesn't do a ton of ridiculous voices. You get the multiple perspectives. I'm pretty sure that Bob was inventing errands to run near yep. the end just so we could be in the car. I guess and I got to go car, get like, the dry cleaning and the, I'll yeah, take the long way we, around. Yeah, like, that's we wouldn't a even tale. be like we wouldn't even be reversing out of the driveway before he'd be like, are we going to listen to Mark Watney now? (laughs) (laughs) Mark Watney being the main character. Yes. uh, Mark Watney is the main character. It's like, if you've not read the Martian or are not familiar with the idea, it's basically MacGyver in space. Um, an astronaut gets stranded on Mars when the rest of his crew thinks that he's died in an accident and they have to abort their mission and abandon the planet very quickly. And instead he's there trying to survive for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's basically like his journal. He's keeping his log of what happens to him every day and how he's solving these problems. It's so great. It's just so fun. The voice of it is sarcastic and funny, and I just you will never be as I, invested I, in the 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 outcome of potato farming as you, you really are, won't. As, it's uh, it's just so it's it's great. Um, and I've also on my own been listening for the last week or so to an anthropologist on Mars by Oliver ah. Sacks, um, which he wrote in 1994. It was one of his earlier books. Um, and it's seven case studies of patients that um, went through huge transformations after uh, some sort of traumatic brain injury or neurological event. And it's just, it's wonderful. Sachs reads the introduction to it, and then there's a narrator who reads the rest of the book. But it's just fascinating. And it's really interesting to to be revisiting these case studies from 20 years ago and hearing about what Sachs was discovering and thinking about how much more and also how much less, um, or at least how much more we've discovered, but how much there is still to go about understanding uh, the science of the brain and how our minds work. It's wonderful. Um, I also recently listened to Packing for Mars while we're on the Mars tip oh, by Mary, Mary Roach, Roach which I had never gotten around to. Uh, Michelle listened to an audio uh, a long time ago and loved it, and I was looking for something to listen to, and I think I was, I think I was, I had watched the the trailer for The Martian. I was like, oh, that reminded me that we had on Audible. Yeah. Another thing to say about Audible that's worth knowing, uh, both you know for this conversation and for the ad read as well, is you can share an Audible account. So mm-hmm. like Michelle and I and actually a couple other people share an Audible account. And I share with our coworker, Clint. Yeah, and so you use the same login and uh, you have access to all the books that that account has access mm-hmm. to. And I think up to five devices can share an account. Yeah, so and you that's own really, your and you Audible own it. books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you have to use the Audible app to do it, but you if you, if you uh, close your Audible subscription, you still have access to those titles and you can listen to something. You know, you can listen to The Night Circus a million times and recommend it to your mom. So if you if you know someone that maybe you want to go in on a subscription together and like pick things jointly and kind of like a, a mini audiobook book club, um, that would be a fun thing That's to a do. That's great idea. Uh, and we got the Martian trifecta of recommendations We did. There. We got the Red Planet covered here, um, <laughs> though there's many, many more Mars books. So audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. 
Yeah, that lets them know you came from us and they can sponsor the show and we can go on weird jags about wildly specific uh, book recommendations for you. Okay, well, where, where, here, are, where are we? Oh my God, this is really, we're going to do this now. We got We have to do it. We have to we do, do it. Have I, to we do have it. to do it. I don't want to do it, but we have to do it. Okay. And then, and then we have a funny then story. Then we have a funny later. story and we'll do new books. Okay, so... You probably if 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 you're listening to this podcast, you're probably familiar with the best American blank series of books: best American short stories, best American poetry, best American sci-fi fiction, fantasy, best American not comics. You know, there's a whole series of them going on for. They quite do a while. infographics now, and yeah, it's they great. do infographics. They get pre- basically what they do, and this is important for the story. We're, we're going to get to the. I'm burying the lead a little bit, but what they do each year is they have a guest editor for that volume, um, who is in charge of picking what gets involved. Um, I think my understanding is the editors will provide sort of a, like a long list yes. and then the, the, the guest editor picks from there or if they want to read something else they can, but they also do initial call from variety of sources, literature, magazines, short story collections, periodicals, whatever. This year, the editor of the most recent volume um, that just came out is Sherman Alexie, um, the novelist, short story, riot poet, probably under known as a poet, I have to say, though, writes really wonderful poetry. And he was the guest editor. And he picked 75 uh, poems uh, to be included um, from what was, you know, both what he had read and what was given to him by the editors. Like, but he has full autonomy to pick. That's something that's important mm-hmm. to say. What happened was, um, I want to get these names right. What's a guy's name? One of the poems, one of the poets who had Michael submitted, Derek Hudson. Michael Derrick Hudson had submitted his poem to Prairie Schooner which is where it originally appeared from, and then that it was included in Parish Scooter made it basically come to the attention of the people picking poems for mm-hmm. this year. Um, but it was published in Prairie Schooner, Prairie Schooner under the name Yifen Chu, Chu See, which is a woman's, a Chinese woman's name. Chinese woman's name is what we've been, this has all come out after the fact. And so what happened was that Alexi read it as Yifen Chu, that he saw that name, and liked the poem, and included it. And only after the fact, after he had picked it, did it come out. And I don't really know how it came out. Was it with the enclosure or something as he was contacting um, Hudson? I don't really know. But in the biography for Hudson that was included in Best American Short Story, it says, Yifen Chu is a pen name of uh, Michael Derrick Hudson, blah, blah, blah. And... Uh, all hell broke. I mean, yes, basically what's happened on the internet is all hell is broken loose. Right. After. It's, it's maybe helpful also to know how the books are, how these books are constructed. Yes. Like you'll read all the poems or all the short stories. And then at the back of the book is the collection of bios for all the writers. Mm-hmm. So it's not like here is a poem. Here is the poet's name. Here is the poet's bio on to the next. Yep. You just get all of the material. And then if you wish to know more about these people, you can turn to the bios at the back of the book. So the poem was published uh, it's called The Bees, the Flowers, Jesus, Ancient Tigers, Poseidon, Adam and Eve. And it was po- it was published. There's a uh, BuzzFeed link that we'll put in the show yes. notes that has a, a scan of the page. And so it says Yifen Chu at the top. Then it has the poem's title. And then it contains the poem. Information about who this person was was at the back of the book. And it says Yifen Chu is the pen name of Michael Derrick Hudson. Goes on to give some information about him and then says he writes, this is a very short answer for my use of a nom de plume. After a poem of mine has been rejected a multitude of times under my real name, I put Yifen's name on it and send it out again as a strategy for placing poems. This has been quite successful for me. 
This poem in question was rejected under my real name 40 times before I sent it out as Yifen Chu. As Yifen, the poem was rejected nine times until Prairie Schooner took it. Uh, if indeed this is one of the best American poems of 2015, it took quite a bit of effort to get it into print, but I'm nothing if not persistent. So this is also not the first time that he has been That's published. crazy... Oh, yeah, he's been published Yifen under Chu. his own name. Like, he's won awards yeah. under his own name. Right. It's like this and particular poem, I guess, and maybe Prairie, others. Right, and Prairie Schooner issued a statement earlier this week saying that they, ha they had published work by Yifen Chu the first time yes. in 2009. So this was not the first time that they had received submissions from Yifen Chu, not knowing that this was a pen name. Um, and that now that they know, they will no longer publish work by Yifen Chu or by the poet Michael Derrick. They, they, they didn't know. They, did they didn't not know. know. They didn't know that they that's what they the were doing. They got all the publishing it, and they didn't know. Right. They didn't know that poems that they were publishing with a Chinese woman's name attached to them were really written by a white man. Yep. Um, well, it makes sense, because Prairie Schooner, they don't do biographies. I mean, this must... Right. The rubber hits the road, I guess, when Hudson gets an email that addressed says, to Miss Chu or whatever, Dear Yi yeah, Fen, saying, right. oh, could you provide us with a bio? We're going to include you. And what are you going to do? Make up... I mean, make up a back... I mean... Uh, I mean, so like a lot of these things are interesting. Yeah, there's, like, there's so many different angles here. You, If you look at just author bios at the back of books, mm -hmm. they vary wildly in how much information yes. they contain. Like, I think Hanya Yanagihara's On a Little Life just says like, Hanya Yanagihara is a novelist who lives in New York. Right, yeah. And she, <laughs> Those are my and favorite. Yeah, and she said in an interview with The Millions that she only put that there because her publisher told her that she had to. And so like, I guess there was probably an option. There was a there was a moment of decision where Michael Derrick Hudson gets an email from Best American uh, Poetry. He could have saying said a poet Sherman, who lives in Ohio, and that's it. Right, saying Sherman Alexi wants to include your poem in Best American Poetry. Please submit a bio, and he could have said Yi Fin Chu mm, is his ego wouldn't let right. him know. Right, is a poet who lives in right, but so instead he comes out yeah. as like, haha, actually, I'm a middle aged white guy. Um, my poem got rejected with my own name. And so I submitted it using this name. And then Alexi still liked the poem, included it. And between Alexi and the best American poetry people, somebody or all of them, I guess, yeah. decided that. Well, it was Alexi. That, Alexi wrote a very interesting. It's not an apology. It's, it's an explanation right. of and, what happened. Um, I think it's worth talking about. It is, yeah. And he says, um, he says quite honestly that he cares about including diverse voices um, in this anthology and the other things that he does, and that this was a Chinese-American person's name gave basically him pause to look at it a little bit longer. And he sort of suggests that that little bit longer helped him decide and fall in love with the poem to include it. And he also says that he he knew about the he had a chance basically to not run the poem in the anthology once he found out about the the real story, and he says and you and I disagree a little bit. I don't think I would have done this either, but I kind of I admire where he's coming from. He says like to take it out would be untrue to my selection process because I picked it as one of the seventy five poems that I that, you know this is one mm -hmm. that I, I included. I fell in love with the poem. Um, even after the fact. And, you know, I felt it would be a disservice to the truth of the editorial selection. Pro I'm not reading verbatim here. I'm just summarizing the selection process and the other poems, frankly, to pull one out, um, this one particular one out, because the truth of it is, is one of my 75, it was one of the 75 
that I fell in love with and I included it. Yeah. Um, well, and I mean, you know, I think uh, go ahead. if he had left it in, but they had published it with Michael Derrick Hudson's name on the page. Yep. Also, there is no explanation story. in the book. My uh, my understanding that about Alexi knowing when he knew the yeah, timeline. There's kind of our ghost at a watchman it, frustration. You know, like it, a little disclosure. It's, yeah, it's hard to know, and we don't know if the best American poetry people and Sherman Alexi concluded that just putting Michael Derrick Hudson's real name in Yi Fin Chu's bio at the back of the book was a sufficient level yeah. of transparency, or if they just kind of hoped that no one would notice or think it was a big deal. Right. Um, it seems like a failure of imagination. If you, for them to have thought like, well, we'll do this and that will be sufficient. Oh, no one, no someone one will... needs to spend more time on the internet. Yeah. It's, I think, so I was kind of, I've been playing out, like, how do I think this should have gone? And I think it should have gone either, we will publish this because true to the selection process, it was one of Sherman Alexie's 75 favorites, and we'll put it in there, but we are publishing it under your real name. Or if I'm Sherman, like, if it were me, I would would be so angry at this man for this behavior that I would refuse to reward this behavior by publishing his poem. And that's really what I think it comes down to that. There's also a a very like hand waving. You use the term gaslighting, which I think Mm -hmm. is correct response from David Lehman um, of the best American series um, where he includes the phrase, the tigers of wrath are louder than the horses of instruction and tigers is spelled with a Y. And there's a bunch of like, this wasn't really a problem at all because there's this long and grand tradition of pseudonyms in literature, (laughs) which sure, but like the vast majority of pseudonyms to my knowledge have been used by people who were writing on the margins and who chose pseudonyms that would try, that would give them, hopefully an advantage of being treated like someone who wasn't on the margins. You know, women write under male pseudonyms so that well, they or, are or under just initials, right? Like that's uh, right, sort of or under just, right, yeah. right. Or under just initials. Um, and that is a thing that has happened through history. Yeah. A white man who already has the greatest amount of privilege in the publishing and who has process. been published. It's not, he's never and been who, published before. And he's desperate right. for a recognition. Like, he just hadn't and, been published enough right. for his taste. And who has been published, then... And it's you know, not getting, a political like, statement. It's not an artistic statement. Like, yeah, there's nothing about like, this that's no, anything other than just a sort of a, it's, a byline it, grab. It is, right. It's, it is difficult enough for people of color to be published, like, because publishing is what it is, and it has the institutionalized racism that we talk about on this show all the time. And then oh, a white man who's just frustrated that this poem has been rejected a bunch of times uses a name that sucks up uh, sucks up part of the already small little bit of air that exists for a person of color to take the spot. Yeah. Um, Saeed Jones, who is a poet and a literary editor at BuzzFeed and an incredible writer, um, also has a poem in this book and was tweeting yesterday. And it's it's a stream that is worth going back and looking for his Twitter handle is the ferocity um, was saying about how excited he was and what it meant to him as an artist and what it meant for his career as a poet to have someone like Sherman Alexie that he admired select his poem to be in the best American poetry and what uh, and Said is a young black man, what that has done, what finding this out has done to the experience for him of this recognition and 
that's there are real people on the ends of these things. It's there. I think that Michael Derrick Hudson's behavior, I think this is inexcusable. Um, when you already have, when you are already in the most privileged position in an industry, um, to take on a pen name that you think is going to give you some increased edge, perhaps because you know that editors are making an effort to include diverse voices. Mm -hmm. You're going to masquerade as a diverse voice. Um, it's it, it, the term yellow face has been used online. I think that's fair. Also, um, there's a line in the did. poem it's, about my not quite perfect English, which is it's just the, very, uh, you know, like doubling is, down, sort of a con artisty. It's really gross. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's, I also think this doesn't exist in a vacuum, that there are potentially other white writers out there who feel threatened by the conversations that we're having about diversity in publishing, who feel threatened by some editors' attempts to include more diverse voices, and are now seeing that this guy did it, and he got his poem and his name in the Best American Poetry, and are thinking about trying the same thing themselves. Well, and you have to wonder, too, like, the next person that's putting together an anthology or a collection, like... Uh, what are you going to have to worry about doing uh, background checks or like verifying that? I mean, this has this weird knock on effects. I also think the racial politics of what pen name he chose is super fascinating and problematic. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. does he pick, he picks, you know, this, this female Chinese name. And I don't know what that means. I don't, I know very little about the cultural politics of being Asian American, but I can, you know, there's this, there's stuff about model minority and it's not too threatening. So right. that sometimes yeah, the were, racism against Asian people aloud, is different. What if you were wondering aloud what it would have been like if he had submitted or uh, under a yeah, name that sounded Shaniqua like a Muslim Jones person's name. Or right. Richard Yellowfeather or, you know, uh, you know, a, a name that sounds Islamic or from the Middle East. Like, I don't know. And I, I think Alexi's own reaction might have been different if it had been. Mm -hmm both, you know, more obviously cross-gendered and more, I don't know, a, a, a racial identity that has more racial charge to it, rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real problem there. Yeah, Alexi in his piece does try to dig into yeah. a little bit of, like, what are the assumptions that he made about who this person was when he was reading the piece. It's I also feel like this is not over. It's like no. far from over. Um, well, there's a ceremony. There's there's like a ceremony for all these best American things. And so what are the other poets who are in the book supposed to do at this ceremony when they have to see this person? Like all these poets, the rest of them presumably are honest about who they are. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, I think so. I mean, the, like, the thing I think we both, we were talking about it back and forth and Book Riot Back Channel is like, it's going to give fodder to the certain, the certain group of people who are not into diversity. They don't care about it for whatever reason, be it, you know, ignorance or racism or fear, fear or whatever it is. You know, it doesn't really matter. They're going to say, look at this. You know, look, look, here's one where it wasn't the quality of the work. It was the name on the paper. Well, in Alexi, I think, says right, you know, says fairly that... It was an extra moment, but he also rejected a lot of people of color. He mm -hmm. rejected, and there are white people in the anthology. And quality is not a objective measure that, you know, there's like, well, this, this poem has 11 units of quality and this one only has 10 and a half. Right. So, you know, looking for different things, thinking about quality as having multiple vectors, you want different kinds of inclusion, different kinds of um, 
different kinds of voices, and that, you know, saying two poems, one is better than another poem, is dumb. Like, it's like, it's dumb. Like, we know it to, we know it's dumb if we could take it to any other sort of, like, field where taste is involved. Like, a hot dog is better than a crab cake. Like, what, I mean, it's, it's nonsensical, right? Like, the Martian. Or even this hot dog is better than that hot dog. This other hot dog, like, you know, people, for too long, taste has been conflated to mean discernment. Whereas really, I think we're, we're discovering that taste is really mm. just taste, you know? Right. It, and it is just, you know, that something is considered good by a lot of people makes it good art is and kind of branding, weird, right? You know, branding the series as the best yeah, American, I think whatever, that is like, a real is, problem that's, it's smart branding, yep. it sells books, but what we know it's a facade. is, this is, this is Sherman Alexie's, like, 75 favorite Of the poems, poems that he had access the, to. Right. right yeah. <laughs> of the ones that he read, and then that he selected based on his personal right. quality vectors. The Best American Short Stories is, uh, whoever's editing that, I think Cheryl Strait edited mm-hmm. last year, um, Cheryl Strade's 75 favorite short stories out of the crop that she read that were pre-culled by someone else who has their own individual biases, both conscious and unconscious. We know that there are all these caveats, that this is not an absolute measure of the best poems and that lots of factors play into it. But the conversation around what this means needs to be more transparent and Man, I, but the reality I, is, I, like, if you have an anthology like this, 75 poems, yeah. and we want it to be more diverse, like, this is U.S., yeah. American, and mm-hmm. we'd like it, I guess, ideally, to come close to representing the demographics of the U.S. Like, we want to have about 15% black people on an ongoing basis and about, you know, 3% Asian people, or, and, I, and I've lost sure. my other demographics. 51% 51 women. That does mean that compared to how it's been in the past, there are going to be fewer white people. And they're going to be fewer dudes if we keep the pie the same size, right, of 75. That is reality. That doesn't mean that the people getting in now that didn't before are worse. It just means it's different. Right. And if you're not getting in now, you got up your game. Right. That's really what it means. When people say to us, like, well, I don't want to choose my books based on the author's color. I just want to read a good story. The implicit assumption there is that if you are considering author's race, and it just so happens to, that only white people write good stories because right, look, the last it, 50 right, books are right, the, all white right, people. The, the implicit assumption there is, oh, well, if you start factoring in race, then you're going to be reading fewer good right. books or the overall quality of the books you read is going to be not as good you're than if you just went looking. You're going to have to compromise your standards right, or your Right, than if you just went right. looking for good stories. Um, what we have found to be true at Book Riot, what we know to be true in the world of art and literature is not that when you focus on representation and diversity, you get fewer good books. It's that you get good books by more kinds of people um, and more kinds of stories and that that's really valuable. And Alexi was going for some of that here when he chose a poem by Yi Fen Chu. It's, I think, bottom line, this poem should not have been in the collection because of all of the pieces, all of the different factors that play in. It's ultimately rewarding a person in a privileged position for taking up a space that was intended to go to a person in a less privileged position who then stands to benefit more from having the kind of, you know, stamp of approval and magnification that having your work published in this kind of book. But I, I think that, I think though, there's the the story being, the poem being the collection, I think does some damage. Like a lot of these sorts of things does some good, does some bad. Maybe the bad outweighs the good. But I think one, the moment that is worth considering is that moment Alexi gives the poem because the name seems to him to be from 
a diverse perspective. Because to be honest, that's a moment, it's not a moment, but it is a kind of a metonym for something I think a lot of us who are paying attention are doing, right? We mm -hmm. give ourselves an extra moment to like browse a little bit longer in script or listen a little harder for people recommending books to us and looking at the names and looking at author photos and looking at descriptions and biographies, following more people of color on Twitter that are, you know, it could be books, could be video games, could be whatever. You know, we're taking that extra moment and it could, it not, might not be temporal. It could be time. It could be energy, it could be attention, but taking that extra moment to say, you know, we care about this. So I'm going to put, take an extra moment of time, an extra moment of energy. And that, to say out loud that that's fine. That's not an abnegation of responsibility. Yeah, that's, that's not a compromise. I that's think not that moment, crap. You know, that's not unfair. That moment is where a lot of the change yeah. is born. Um, but I've been tracking for, for August and for September so far the books that I get in the mail from publishers. And so what's made available to me if I don't go looking. Yeah and uh, who the authors of those books are. And of the last hundred books I've gotten in the mail, six have been by people of color. I am trying to read at least like 35% books by people of color and to have that kind of representation in my reading life. So I, ha I do have to pause. I have to look at what shows up and then I really have to go and dig through publisher catalogs and look at the books that are coming out soon and pay attention. I want something that I read every week to be by a person of color. Um, th and the mo that moment, I've read things that I would not have initially picked up probably or things that sounded like a stretch to my typical reading taste um, because of that pause. And many of those books have been really excellent and have introduced me to you know, other writers and other kinds of stories that I wouldn't have found before. And it's it's worthwhile. Alexi's piece feels a little apologetic for that pause. And he uses the word nepotism, mm -hmm. which I think is charged. interesting. And it, right, yes. <laughs> it, it is charged. Um, like he feels a little sorry that he spent the extra moment or he doesn't like admitting. Yeah, that he spent I think the that's extra the thing moment. to take and, out of this for me is to just take ownership of that extra yeah. moment. Like, if that's what you care about, care about it you don't have to apologize well, i don't think alexia you know, has to apologize like no and it, I, it's, like if my book mail is any kind of microcosm uh, seriously then then if you don't pause then you're just subject to the universe if you don't pause then 94 out of every 100 books you read are right. going to be by white people right if not more and that is not an acceptable state of affairs to me. So the alternative is to pause and the alternative is to go look and the alternative is to follow more writers of color on Twitter and pay attention to the books that they recommend and to seek them out because I believe and we believe that we can make some change there that what we read and then what we talk about affects what our readers will pick up and what they will talk about and recommend, you know, can trickle down and make some change in the industry in some way. And Alexi was looking to do the same thing with this collection, was looking to have diverse voices and to consider the consequences and the benefits to writers of being included in a collection like this. Yeah, I think that that pause moment is something that a lot of us who care about this sort of stuff do in a variety of different ways. But it has been sort of a don't talk about it too much because you don't want people saying you're... I don't know. I don't, that what, you only read that book because, because the yeah, only black, because right? you only like that because, or you're not reading the actual good stuff because you care about this thing that has nothing to do with quality and it's just social justice warrior crap, whatever. And I'm saying, well, I mean, maybe we should just take ownership of like, like the pause is part of what we care about. 
and the pause doesn't change the overall quality, quote unquote, that doesn't exist because it's not a real objective thing. Um, you just get different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And that is worth doing for, I think, most people. I think most people understand that, right? Like, Because I think the nepotism part is unfortunate, but I kind of understand what he's talking about because you give people in your immediate family breaks you don't give strangers, right? Mm-hmm. For reasons that aren't about their value as human beings necessarily, but about because you care about them more. And I think that's maybe the the unfortunate metaphor there, but like that he cares about something in addition to something else, you know, and the nepotism is weird. Um, Cause we think of nepotism as bad, right? That's the right. nepotism it, is it has a loaded, it's corrupt it, and it's yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, but what he's sort of thinking using about it's not, it's not objective, right? It's like, that's right. the, that's the kind of thing he's trying to capture, I think. And I don't know what a better word for it is, but I think that was unfortunate that that was the metaphor he used, even as I sort of, I think, I feel like I understand uh, what he was trying to express there. So uh, I, you know, I think that pause, um, Michael Derrick Hudson was consciously or unconsciously aware of and trying to exploit. I agree. Because the thing that was important to him is getting his poem in a goddamn lit journal. Um, it's gross. Yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad. I'm glad. I'm, I think it's a conversation worth having. I think for me mm-hmm. um, personally, and I know it affects, especially if you're a Chinese poet, I can imagine you have a completely different set of reaction to this. But for me, I think thinking about that pause and not being ashamed of it, and I don't think I really was ashamed before, but I, I wouldn't want to talk about it too much or like that's not something that I wanted to have centered in the discussion, especially if we talk mm. about the show and on the side about diversity, that there's mm-hmm. this pause that happens um, when you're looking for diverse titles or, you know, you're trying to write about different kinds of books or recommending different books on the show um, here, that that is something that happens. It takes extra energy because it doesn't happen, quote unquote, organically in our book yeah. reading lives. It doesn't even happen close no, to organically. No, no, it doesn't even. And it, it has to be, th- those six that you got are fighting and scratching and clawing. They are. Uh, to be there. Okay. We got one okay. more spot. We got an ad spot, then we'll do... Oh, no, should we do the fun... Th- let's do the funny thing. Let's funny, do the funny fun thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like the funniest book thing that I've seen on the internet in a while, and I needed it yeah, this right. week. <laughs> there is a website called Poop Fiction <laughs> that picks the perfect story for your bathroom time. Unbelievable. Oh, I know. I think I was off the show. It was a week that you had Amanda on and you guys were talking about something else. People reading on their phones in the bathroom. You don't have to confess to it, but I firmly believe that everybody has checked Twitter from the bathroom at least once in their life. And uh, they poop fiction kind of figures that instead of killing time while you're on the throne and you're why not read something? There you go. So you go to Poop Fiction, you put in uh, whether you need a short, like a tiny break of one to two minutes or a short break of two to three or a medium or a long break. And then you click find me a story and then it will give you a story to read that is the appropriate length. And the example from this Gizmodo piece is The Devil and the Innkeeper, which is a fable by Robert Louis Stevenson. So like these aren't, you know, just like silly random things that people at Poop Fiction yes wrote they're pulling from project gutenberg and i guess they've coded different things from project gutenberg based on how long they think it'll take you to read so you could read some legit yeah, oh yeah. old stories while you poop well poop fiction <laughs> uh, as you know as i've said about audiobooks i'm interested in getting reading into all the nooks and crannies <laughs> of your life oh jeff <laughs> what i didn't say what did i say did i say something 
let's move on to our last sponsor this week. Uh, Lizard Radio by Pat Schmatz. Uh, this is a new book from Candlewick. It is about a teenager named Kavali who lives in a futuristic society that's run by the all-powerful Gov, uh, G-O-V, capital-like government. Uh, Kavali is a bender teen. She's on the cusp of adulthood and has choices to make that will change her life and possibly the world. So Kavali's 15. She's had a very rough time because her culture is very gender rigid. She was abandoned as, as a baby. She was raised by a woman named Sheila, who is an ardent nonconformist, and Cavalli has always been surrounded by uncertainty. She doesn't know where she came from. She doesn't know if it's true what Sheila says, that she was deposited on Earth by mysterious Saurians. People ask her, what are you? And she's not sure how to answer. Is she a boy or a girl? Is she a human or a lizard? Is she both or neither? Now Cavalli is in crop camp, where with all of its schedules and regulations, she also finds the first real friends that she's ever had. Um, There are strange occurrences, complicated relationships raise questions for Cavalli that she's never had to consider before. And she has a gift. She can enter a trance-like state to harness the knowings inside her. And they call this gift Lizard Radio. But will it be enough to save her? Uh, Lizard Radio is a coming-of-age story that's rich in friendships. It has those shattering emotions of first love, um, of being a teenager, emerging into the adult world, wrestling with your identity. Uh, we've uh, Speaking of diverse books, mm-hmm. this is a book with a genderqueer protagonist. It's an alternate reality. It's not quite dystopian. And, you know, so deals with a lot of the issues and the feelings that all teenagers have, but also things specific um, to gender and to sexual identity. So Lizard Radio by Pat Schmatz, um, out from Candlewick. Now you can find it wherever books are sold, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Thanks to them for sponsoring this week. That It sounds great. I've had this mm. for months, and I'm going to pick it up. Um, I have sold it to myself now. That, that's, 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 that's probably <laughs> the best uh, recommendation for an ad read you can get. Oops, I just bought it. <laughs> yep, this happens. This happens to me like once a month on the show. I'm like, well, I guess I'm well, buying yeah, well, the thing. Well, I'm in I... on that now. I just talked myself yeah. into it. This is also how I ended up eating six donuts at once. I guess it's okay. I just said it was. Yeah, you don't even have to sell yourself the donuts. No, that's they just true. They just fly appear. into your mouth. All right, tell me you about do. some new books. Then. Okay, new books. This is a good week for new yeah, books. Um, this is Your Life. Harriet Chance is the new novel by Jonathan Evison. I talked about this for like a long time on the All the Books podcast this week because it's just such a delight. Uh, this is a novel about a 78-year-old woman named Harriet Chance. Her husband's been dead for two years, and she gets a phone call one day that uh, an Alaskan cruise that her husband won at an auction before he died is about to expire. Their vouchers for it are about to expire. She didn't know that her husband even had the vouchers to this cruise, but now that they exist, she's going to go. So she makes this last minute ill-advised decision to go on the cruise. Her best friend who's supposed to go with her bails out. And while she's on the cruise, she gets some information about secrets her husband was keeping that basically call into question the last several decades of her life. Mm. Um, there are so there are like very sort of deep and painful moments about life and marriage and secrets and family, but also some hilarious like madcap moments that Harriet has when she gets a little drunk at dinner on the cruise um, and is trying to make sense of these experiences. Um, and the title, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, refers to the structure of the book, which is told in This Is Your Lifestyle episodes where it moves in a nonlinear fashion between like – 
Harriet as a baby, Harriet as a teenager, Harriet as an adult, back to a different time in Harriet's early life. And there are some chapters from other perspectives that are great and surprising and totally delightful. And so I'm not going to tell you what those perspectives are are. But This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. I read it in one sitting. Mm. It was awesome. Um, really, really excellent. I was looking at uh, the Kobo ebook bestsellers this morning mm-hmm. for reasons that don't matter, but it was the third bestselling title this week on Kobo. Oh, good. I am glad for that. Yeah, I don't know how many that means, but there it is. Yeah. I really like Jonathan Evison. I've read all of his fiction and every book is totally different, yeah. um, which is a thing I also really appreciate in novelists. Um, for nonfiction, out this week is Negroland, a memoir by Margot Jefferson. I'm so looking forward to this. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. Um, and it made me deeply uncomfortable in ways that I think I should probably be uncomfortable mm. more often. Uh, Jefferson was raised in what she she calls it Negroland, um, a privileged pocket of the black community in Chicago. Her father was the head of pediatrics at Provident, which was the first all black hospital in the country. Her mother was a socialite. And she grew up around other very educated, uh, relatively well off black Americans. And uh, she was taught what we call now respectability politics is essentially Mm -hmm. how we would describe it in today's vocabulary for talking about race, but that um, that she needed to behave a certain way that she needed to be educated in a certain fashion, um, that she needed to be twice as good at all of the things and twice as respectable in all ways in order to rise above the assumptions that the white people who sort of who surrounded this privileged pocket make about black people in America. And now as an an older adult woman, she's in, I think she's in her 60s. Um, she's taking apart these lessons that she learned about how to be a certain kind of black person um, and looking at them through the lens of different historical moments in American culture, including emancipation, and then the civil rights movement, and then the birth of feminism. Um, and through her own personal story, Jefferson is a critic, and you can see her cultural wonderful critic. cultural critic oh. yeah, i've read her for a long time yeah you can see that eye mm-hmm. and understanding of how to dissect things come to the way that she looks at her own life and the culture that she was raised in and this it's really wonderful and the final chapter includes all through the book she addresses is- issues of intersectionality and that it's not just about um feminism but about what it would mean to be a black woman or what it would mean to be a poor black woman or a poor white woman or um not just the difference between black and white people but there are that there are other vectors that affect our lives um, but the final chapter really has i think the most thorough and straightforward discussion of intersectionality that mm. i've read and so um that's I, i've been wanting to just like tear it out and send that to people who like aren't quite understanding what we're talking about now when we talk about intersectional feminism and we talk about how racism is a feminist issue. Sounds like uh, it would make an interesting, not coda, but companion to Between the World and Me. It really would. That's, um, I was almost about oh, to say I'm it. Sorry, yeah, no, I think um, it, it is an interesting companion to Between the World and Me. And we're getting great memoirs this year by great black thinkers um, and from all over the spectrum of experience or from more mm-hmm. of the spectrum of black American experience than we've seen in the past. So this is, uh, this is a good time for that. Um, but it, yeah, I think if you read the ta Coates memoir, Negro Land by Margaret Jefferson is right up your alley. It's, it's really terrific. And I, I told Liberty before we recorded all the books, like I was nervous about talking about it because Jefferson talks about 
so many experiences that I can only ever try to understand from the outside, of course, um, in language that indicts the white community, because of course, the white community creates the racism that exists about black people. Um, and it's, I, I was uncomfortable. And it was in, an important way to be uncomfortable. And it's a it's a great, great book. I'm excited for you to read I'm it. I want like, to like, do you know, there's an audio donuts together. You know? Oh, I don't I know, but looked. I bet it would I have, I, it would be great on audio. I have it on a waitlist at the library, but I might have to jump on make it. The voice of her voice in the book, and you know from mm -hmm. reading her for a long time, her voice in the book is really fantastic. And I think it would definitely have that feeling of like driving or walking around with your super smart, fascinating friend. I think that's our uh, show. That is our show. We went long today, but there's a lot to cover today. Yeah, the last couple of weeks. I'll be out yeah, next week so you and Amanda can week. have a party. Uh, well, hopefully nothing completely outrageous will uh, happen so you can come on and be frustrated by something else uh, next <laughs> week. Uh, you can find show notes for this and every other episode of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com if you've got comments, questions, feedback. I'm especially interested if you live in the UK or really anywhere that's not the U.S., um, about the uh, the use of those those tables in the front of bookstores, what appears there? Do you have? Is it common to see one that's an award winner, or paperback favorites, or staff picks, or you know? Because a lot of those times, staff picks they use the award winners or finalists mm -hmm. something as a way to fill those out. Um, get listen to get booked with Amanda and Jen this week. Amanda's new show, Get Booked. Uh, you can find it at uh, bookrat.com slash get booked, or just search for it in your podcast player of choice. It's right there. Episode one is up. Uh, I haven't listened to the first episode yet. I'm going to listen to it today, so I'm looking forward to it too. Rebecca, have a great vacation. Thank you. All right. Talk to you all uh, some other one. time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll see you on the yeah, flip. Bye. <laughs>